you fail Christ daily. If we had a tyrannical king for a savior, he would be done with us. I brought you in though you didn't deserve it. I redeemed you. I forgave your sins though you didn't deserve it. But you fail me daily, so you're done. This is Timeless Truth Today, and I'm your host, Matt Williams. Welcome to part two of Christ, the Center of All History, an 11-part series from Pastor Paul Twiss. Pastor Paul's text today is St. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. History's setting for Christ's birth is not a place of high regard. It's humble Bethlehem, where no palace existed and where no king is expected to be born. The setting could not be confused as the birthplace of kings, kings who would be idol worshippers and despots like some born in Jerusalem. But it was the birthplace of our Savior, who changed the world even though he was rejected by his people. Why? Because Jesus did not fit the mold of a political hero. King Herod, the locally ruling king under Rome's watchful eye, was a despot and a murderer. But the people preferred him to the real king, a savior who did not shrink from warning the religious power class to repent of its hypocrisy. Here's part two of Christ, the center of all history. As you yearn for your future salvation, God has not forgotten about you. His plan and his timing, the execution of that plan is perfect. Who is like the Lord? That is the message of Micah. A linchpin text within Micah is the one quoted in Matthew 2 today. A linchpin text upon which it all hinges is this king who will be born in Bethlehem. And there again we see the incredible perfection of God. No one else would have planned it like this, but God does. He displays his glory by ordaining that the Messiah would be born in a town like Bethlehem. Meaning, Bethlehem had no reputation. No one ever expected anything good to come out of Bethlehem. And that is is exactly the way the Lord works. It is still like that today. In the Lord's wisdom, Bethlehem remains a town that really has not much to boast about it. If you go to Israel, you'll be impressed visually by Jerusalem. You'll be impressed by the old city and the Temple Mount. You'll be impressed by many things in Israel, not Bethlehem. It is a town of little repute. There's lots of tourists that go there. It's full of tourists because it's the birthplace of Christ. There's buses and buses and buses going into Bethlehem every day. But it doesn't have anything to boast about apart from the birth of the Messiah. And that was God's perfect plan. Now, at Christmas time, we visit this text. This is one of our Christmas texts. We sing about the town of Bethlehem. But I wonder if you've ever considered why this humble beginning of the Messiah is perfect for you. 
We affirm it historically as a fact. We sing songs about it. But you need to understand the context from which it comes, which is a book wherein the perfection of God's plan is being made known. So why was it perfect that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem? And what we'll often say at Christmas, rightly, what we'll often say is his humble beginnings in a town such as Bethlehem portend, look forward to, hint at his humble earthly ministry. That's absolutely correct. We champion that. Look how he began in a manger as an infant in Bethlehem. And oh, how that speaks of his humble earthly life. Yes. But why was that perfect? Matthew answers that question by adding what I call a crystallizing text to the quotation of Micah. The very last line of the quotation there, who will shepherd my people Israel, is actually taken from another Old Testament text. If you have cross-references in your Bible, you might see Micah 5.1 listed. You might also see 2 Samuel 5.2. Micah gives us the reality of Jesus' birth in Bethlehem. Matthew takes the liberty, and he is at liberty to do this, he takes another scripture and adds it on the end to crystallize the theology of the birth in Bethlehem. He takes from 2 Samuel 5, wherein David is crowned as king over all of Israel, and the people flock to him, and the people proclaim him to be their shepherd. God says, you will shepherd my people Israel, and the Israelites say, yes, you are our shepherd. And that crystallizes for us why Christ's birth in Bethlehem was perfect. Because it portends not merely a humble earthly ministry. It speaks of the fact that this king is coming as a shepherd. It tells us that his humble beginnings project forward to a humble earthly ministry as a lowly, loving, caring shepherd. And that is exactly what each and every one of us needs. Consider the fact, in your sin, you were dead, spiritually lifeless. You had nothing going on spiritually. If God had sent a tyrannical king, heavy-handed, who was going to boss people around and only thought about himself, you would still be lifeless today. Dead in your sins. You had nothing in you that considered seeking salvation. There was nothing that you contributed to your salvation. So the last thing you needed was a tyrannical king who also would care nothing about your salvation. What you needed in your dead and lifeless state as a sinner and an enemy of God, what you needed was a shepherd who would seek and save the lost. The only way in which you might be given life, spiritual life, eternal life, is if a shepherd came to seek you out. And if you are in Christ this morning, understand that whatever your testimony may sound like, theologically, Christ the good shepherd came and found you. He found you when you were not looking for him. Consider the fact that Christ the humble shepherd came to one who had declared himself to be an enemy of God. 
through your actions and your thoughts and the meditations of your heart, you had declared yourself to be an enemy of God. And a tyrannical king who was full of pride would never have approached such an enemy and said, I'm going to bring you in though you don't deserve it. That's not the way of a despot. The lowly earthly shepherd says, I know who you are and I am coming to save you. I know you're an enemy of God, but my mission is to come and bring you into my fold. You need a shepherd to be found in Christ this morning. Consider the reality of your sanctification. Do you have any idea how many times you fail Christ daily? And the answer is no, none of us do. We fail Christ daily, hundreds of times. We're in this, this journey of sanctification, of striving to be like him, informed by his word, what he requires of us, and yet we fail him continuously. I find that in the mornings when I, when I come to the word and, and prayer, I've been awake for 10 minutes, and I have things I have to confess. In 10 minutes, I have found things that have not honored the Lord in my heart, in my thoughts. The alarm clock sounds and I grumble. <laughs> I failed him. That's his providence. It's his providence that this hour has come and I have to get up. So don't grumble. You fail Christ daily. If we had a tyrannical king for a savior, he would be done with us. I brought you in, though you didn't deserve it. I redeemed you. I forgave your sins, though you didn't deserve it. But you fail me daily, so you're done. You're out. That's how a tyrannical king would respond to us. The shepherd does not. The shepherd who is Christ perseveres with you. He goes along with you, knowing more fully than you do all of your failures. He never, ever gives up on you. We have a shepherd who in John 10 says, I know my sheep, they are in my hands, and no one will snatch them out. No one will snatch them from my hand. If he has saved you, you are safe in his love, and you will never be found outside of it. And you can sin and sin and sin, and he will not let you go. He won't let you persist in that sinning for long, but he won't let you go. Because he is a shepherd. Consider the fact of your final glorification. You need a shepherd to see you to that last day. If we served a dictator, a despot, if we served an angry, mean savior, should you make it to the end, when you enter into his presence, most likely he would begrudgingly bring you in. He would turn up his nose and say, well, you're here now, so go sit over there. I'm eating my meal and you. we serve a shepherd, which means on the last day, he will celebrate your arrival. Knowing all your failings, he will celebrate your arrival in glory. When you arrive, he will celebrate you before the heavenly host. And you won't be far from him in his kingdom. You will stand face to face. 
And he will pull up a chair and say, sit with me to eat. That is what it looks like to have a shepherd for a savior. And that is exactly what we need, and it is exactly what God gave to us. You see how this has implications for your life. As you learn more of the riches of Christ's glory, it can't but affect the way you live. We're to be good sheep. When you consider the shepherd that God has given us, what response could there be but to say, Lord, make me a good sheep. Fashion and mold me to be a good sheep of this shepherd. To live every day in obedience because of how good he has been to me. Now that's the significance of him having been born in Bethlehem. He was born in Bethlehem in the days of Herod the king. This leads us to another facet of Christ's glory by virtue of another Old Testament text. He was born in the days of Herod the king. Now, Herod, in Matthew's narrative, functions in in two ways. One, as the complete polar opposite to Christ. So there is something of a, a, a contrast being forged by Matthew in this text between Herod the king and the king of the Jews. Notice the wise men's announcement. Their announcement is not, where is the one who will one day in the future be called king of the Jews? That's not what they say. The truest sense of their announcement is, where is the one who right now is king of the Jews? How they knew that, I don't know. But somehow they knew that this child was king of the Jews. So immediately, as we enter into this text, there is a a contrast. Two kings are on display. Herod, a king, and Jesus, the king of the Jews. And there is an intentional contrast being set up between them. Another way in which Herod functions in Matthew's prologue all the way through, not just here, is that he is being likened to many Old Testament kings. We studied the reality of the virgin birth. That led us back to Isaiah 7. In Isaiah 7, we saw a chessboard of kings, none of whom deserved to be called that. There was the king of Syria, the king of Assyria, the king of Israel, the king of Judah, all worthless kings. In that context, the prophecy of the virgin birth is given. Matthew quotes it, so he's pulling that context into his gospel And one of the inferences, we are to see Herod in the likeness of those worthless Old Testament kings. Again, in this text, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, Herod is supposed to be seen in the likeness of one particular Old Testament king. The Old Testament king to whom I'm referring is Balak, the king of Moab. And you say, who on earth was Balak, the king of Moab? You do know him. He was the king that commissioned Balaam. Balaam was the guy that had the talking donkey. It's a well-known Old Testament Sunday school lesson. God can cause a donkey to speak, right? Balak was the king that commissioned Balaam who had the speaking donkey. Balak, the king of Moab. So why is it that we're intended or we're supposed to see Herod in the likeness of that Old Testament king? There are a number of parallels that suggest that we are. Balak was a foreign king. He was 
threatened by Israel. He saw the nation of Israel. He didn't like what he saw. He felt threatened by them. He was unnerved by the Israelites. He commissions a pagan prophet, Balaam. He hires him, and specifically he hires him to speak curses over the Israelites. Balaam can't speak those curses. He opens his mouth, and no curse is found. But some of the richest blessings bestowed upon Israel in all of the Bible. God's plan will not be thwarted. Fast forward to Matthew's day. We have a foreign king named Herod. He is threatened by one Israelite. The text tells us Herod the king heard this. He was troubled. There's an understatement. He feels threatened by a child. So he hires or commissions or instructs some foreign men. Now, we'll talk a bit more about the wise men in just a minute, but suffice to say for now, they would have been men of authority, interpreters of dreams, understanders of of things, spiritual things. Herod commissions them, not specifically to speak words of curse over the child, but to aid him in a plan that is far worse. Herod's plan is far worse than Balak's plan. Balak said, just speak bad things over them trusting that they would then come to pass. Herod says, my intention is to kill this child. And what I need from you is some very special information, so help me in this. Of course, he's lying, but the dream made plain to the wise men that they wouldn't be part of this plan. So Herod seeks to kill the child. The wise men have no part in this. The wise men not only avoid going back the same way because they receive the dream, But as it relates to their interaction with the baby, they fall down and they worship him. And if you study that one verb to worship throughout the Gospel of Matthew, there is one occasion when Jesus uses it within a parable. Every other occasion that verb is reserved for the worship of Christ. There are people throughout Matthew's Gospel who fall flat on their faces to worship the Christ. I don't know what the wise men knew, what they thought, what was going on in their hearts as they worshipped him, but they are aligning themselves to some degree with the worship that we see all the way through the gospel that is befitting of this man. They worship him. They don't facilitate a plan to kill him. They fall on their faces and they honour the king of the Jews. God's plan will not be thwarted. Now, do you see the radical implications for your life? If you are here this morning and you are not in Christ, I can't offer you much encouragement. I can't offer you much consolation when the world doesn't go the way you would like it to go when your circumstances are not what you would have them be. I can't say much to that. I can't say if you are not in Christ, I cannot say, it's okay, this is going to work out. I can't say God's in this. You can't see him, but I promise you this is for your good. And one day when you get to glory, you'll see it. Because those things cannot be said of someone who has not been reconciled to God through the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. 
But if you are here with eyes of faith saying, I see what the Bible says about Jesus and I believe it with all my heart. If you are here and you say, I accept Jesus at his word. That's all that's being asked. I accept him for who he says he is. That he has made a payment for my sin. That he's the king over the whole universe. That he demands my worship. I believe it all. If that is you and you are in Christ then to have been knit together with this king who is a representative of the truth that God's plans will not be thwarted, now I have all the counsel in the world for you. Whatever circumstances life presents you with, God is in this. He hasn't made a mistake, I promise. I can't explain it. I don't know why he's brought about these circumstances, but I promise on account of God's word, he is in it. And he is for you in it. He's not against you. In Christ, he is never against you. He is always, always, only, totally for you. He is working out good purposes, the extent of which you cannot fathom. And rest assured, he will be glorified in your life. You will get to glory and look back and see with increased understanding and say, I now understand that it was best. That is the proclamation of the Christian. Whatever God brings about, however little we may understand the specifics, we are able to say, based upon the word of God, this is God's best for me. He never gives you anything other than his best for you. If he's withheld something, it's not his best for you. If he has given you something, that is his best for you in accordance with the plan that you have not yet taken in. We had a phrase in our house for many years during very trying times. Think back, we were having our children, lots of littler children in our house than there are now, few hours of sleep. I was still in seminary, which means even fewer hours of sleep. We had this car that would just break down all the time. And it was, it was difficult to pay bills and make ends meet. And, and we, f- we felt the strain of life. We felt the reality of living in a broken world. And daily things would come up. And Laura, more than me, she would just remind me and say, this is God's best for us today. This is God's best for us today. Do you believe that? Is it something that you say in response to your Savior, Jesus Christ. Because that is the narrative that Matthew is giving to us. That's the theology he wants us to embrace. God's plan will not be thwarted. You're listening to Timeless Truth Today. Matthew was spiritually dead and a societal outcast when Christ bid him to follow. He was a tax collector for the Roman government, the lowest of the low who became rich by cheating his fellow citizens. But in his own telling of it, Matthew was ready to leave his tax booth and follow Jesus, apparently with no regrets. We don't know much about Matthew's life after he witnessed Christ's ascension, but his account in the Gospel of Matthew showed Christ Jesus as the center of all history and led countless souls to follow this humble Savior. Have you yet followed this beckoning Savior? If you'd like to learn more about Jesus Christ, come to TimelessTruthToday.org. That's TimelessTruthToday.org. 
On the homepage, select Broadcasts, and there you'll find an archive of audio programs, Christ-centered, solid Bible teaching. Timeless Truth Today is a teaching ministry of Pastor Paul Twiss, a listener-supported outreach of Bethany Bible Church in Thousand Oaks, California. If you're not part of a local church, come worship with us Sundays at 10.30 a.m. We're located at 200 West Bethany Court in Thousand Oaks. Join us tomorrow in our continuing series with part three of Christ, the Center of All History from Pastor Paul Twiss. I'm Matt Williams. Thank you for listening to Timeless Truth Today.